What do you think of when you think of the uh, disciple Peter? He's probably the, the foolish character we have in Scripture. Um, as you see him in, in the Gospels and in Acts and his letters, we, we, we just get such a full portrait of Peter. And, and the Gospel of John is no exception. It gives us this, this full portrait of Peter. Now, we could probably say more than I'm going to say now, but, but as I reflected this week on, on what we have seen of Peter so far in the Gospel of John, we see that Peter was a man of great faith. He was a man of great faith in Jesus. He he believed in Jesus. He he had a strong faith in him. He had passion for him, love for him even. We also see that Peter was a man of great confusion about Jesus. He had great faith in Jesus, but he was also very confused. (laughs) And what we finally see is that Peter had great confidence in himself. Great faith in Jesus mixed with great confusion about Jesus, mixed with great confidence in himself. Think about in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. In chapter 6 of John, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. The text makes no attempt to explain how he did it. It just says that he received five loaves and two fish, and he fed 5,000 people. And, of course, all of these people want more food. People follow the food in life. That's the general principle, okay? People follow the food. And so they want more food. They follow Jesus, and Jesus tells them, he teaches them, he instructs them, and he says, he says you need bread from heaven. I'm the bread of heaven, and you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's what Jesus told them. Jesus did not see all these people come and say, this is great, I've got a following. No, he said, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. This was offensive, and it was hard, and it was different, and the text tells us that many of his disciples left him that day. Many of his disciples left him that day. And we have a picture where Jesus is left with the twelve. And he says to the twelve, do you want to leave me too? Who speaks up in that moment? Peter does. And what does Peter say? He says, where else could we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That is great faith. Listen, Peter didn't understand anything more than the crowds understood in that moment. When when Jesus said, eat my flesh, drink my blood, Peter was thinking, what is he talking about? But he knew and believed who Jesus was. And he said, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life, and I want eternal life. We are not going to leave you. You are the Messiah. You are God's Holy One. He had great faith. But he also had great confusion about Jesus. Think later to chapter 13 of the Gospel of John. Jesus puts on servants' clothes. He gets down to wash the disciples' feet, going one by one, their master washing their feet, doing the act of a servant. And he gets to Peter. And Peter says, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. You shall never wash my feet. Peter thinks that he's saying the right thing in this moment. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And so Peter says, well... 
Wash my head then and my hand. Get, get, wash my whole body. And, and Jesus says, Peter, you don't need a bath. You, you don't need a bath. You just, you just need your feet washed. And, and Peter's, we just picture him just, okay, wash my feet. I'm utterly confused, but, but go, go ahead, Jesus. Peter, Peter was confused by Jesus. He, he didn't understand Jesus. He knew he was the Messiah, but he didn't know what kind of Messiah he was. We also know that Peter had great confidence in himself. Peter had great confidence in himself. Just just a little bit later that night, Jesus begins teaching his disciples, and he begins saying, I'm going away. I'm leaving. And and Peter does not like the sound of that. I mean, this this is his Messiah. This is the king of Israel. What does he mean he's going away? He says, Lord, where are you going? And, And Jesus tells him, you can't follow me right now. You will follow later. And Peter says, why can't I follow you? Jesus, don't you know that I would lay down my life for you? I'll lay down my life for you. What does Jesus say? He says, will you lay down your life for me? I tell you, tonight, three times, you will deny me before the rooster crows. Between now and when the rooster crows in the morning, you are going to deny me three times. Jesus speaks into that self-confidence and says, don't be so confident, Peter. Peter was sure that he was devoted. Peter was sure that he was genuine. Peter was was confident that his devotion to Christ would extend to giving up his life itself. And Jesus calls him on it. And he says, tonight, this very night, you will deny me three times. Well, that word from Jesus to Peter in chapter 13 is fulfilled in today's text. And so if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18... John chapter 18, and we're going to read verses 12 through 17. Before we do, let me just point out one more thing about Peter. In the passage right before today's text, in in chapter 18, verses 10 and 11, we see all three of those traits on display in Peter. His faith in Jesus, his confusion about Jesus, his confidence in himself. We see them all come out as Peter draws his sword, as Peter draws his sword, when they try to arrest Jesus. He believes in Jesus, but he's also very confused about what Jesus is doing. And he's very confident that he can do something about it. And Jesus says, put your sword away, Peter. Don't you know I need to drink the cup the Father's given me? And so that's where we last see Peter putting his sword away, completely confused about who Jesus is, completely humiliated that he just did what he did, believing in Jesus, but, but, but lost in the sea of what is happening to Jesus. And then we read chapter 18, starting in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and he spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, 
Are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also aren't one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. In this passage, John gives us four scenes, four four moments, four snapshots from Jesus' passion, from this early stage in Jesus' passion, four scenes that he's going to use to communicate one more aspect of what Jesus is doing in his passion here. And so four scenes, scene number one, scene one, the Jews arrest Jesus. Scene one, the Jews arrest Jesus, and this scene covers verses 12 through 14. So verse 12 tells us that a legion of soldiers and Jewish officers arrested Jesus and bound him. Okay, so so picture Jesus, hands tied behind his back, surrounded by soldiers, being led away as a prisoner. Powerless, bound, taken. This is Jesus in this moment. But let's not forget what we just read last week. When when these officers and soldiers came to Jesus, what happened? Jesus went out to them and he said, Whom do you seek? And and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And and he said, He said, I am He. I am He. And when he said that, all the soldiers and all the officers and Judas fell to the ground. When he said, I am he, they fell down to the ground. And and, and there was a moment where all of these soldiers were were on the ground before Jesus, who was standing up in front of them. And as they get back up, Jesus says to them again, Whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And and he lets them take him. So so, so we know already, let's not forget, John, John has just told us, we know that Jesus is in complete control of this. As we see him bound, arrested, taken away, we, the reader, know he didn't need to do this. He's doing this willingly. He has control. He has power. He is the divine I am. He's the great I am. But right now he's bound and arrested. And it it appears that the Jews and Caiaphas are winning the day. Now, now, look, he, he reminds us that well, first, I'm sorry. 
Let me, let me give you a technical point, okay? Because I, I don't want us to stumble over something here. Look in verse 13. They led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Okay, so that text tells us who was high priest? Caiaphas. Okay. Look down to verse 19. They led him to Annas, right? Verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus. And then verse 24. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Okay, so... So who does it seem like is the high priest there? Annas, right? But then he sends him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So, so there are people who, who, who read this and they say, John had no idea what he was talking about. 2,000 years later, we know that he was confused. All right. Now, one, we can trust that, that John knew what he was talking about. when He, he was there. He was an eyewitness. He, he, he knew what he was saying when he said Caiaphas was the high priest and Annas was the high priest. So... But that can still be a stumbling block for us. It can be confusing. So let me just explain to you what's going on there. Annas was the high priest. All right, Annas was the Jewish high priest. And high priests in Judaism held office for life. Once you were the high priest, that was an office you held for life. Hebrews tells us that. You held it for life. But the Romans came, and, and they wanted to set up their own leaders. They still let them have their religious structure, but they set up their own leaders, and so they made Caiaphas the high priest. They deposed Annas and made Caiaphas the high priest. So here's what's going on. The Jews know Annas is really the high priest. They knew that he is the high priest that God has given us, but they also knew that Caiaphas is the puppet high priest, that Caiaphas is the legal high priest, and so that's why they bring him to Annas first, but then when they want to bring him to Pilate, they send him to Caiaphas. That they, they're working within the structures of what the Romans have done, but they know who the real high priest is. And okay, so, so that is just a technical point so that we don't get confused as we read. Okay? So they, they lead him to Annas, the high priest. And then he reminds us in verse 14, he says, It was Caiaphas, Annas' son-in-law, the puppet high priest, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Okay, so, so this is what you call a, a narrator's uh, reflection. John, John is inserting something into the story here that's important, right? He, he doesn't need to say this. He, he reminds us, Caiaphas is the one who had told the Jews that one man should die for the people. And so John wants us to remember that. Does anyone remember when Caiaphas said that? Turn back to John chapter 11. Turn back to John chapter 11. Jesus, in John 11, raised a man from the dead. He raised a man from the dead who had been dead for three days. And many of the Jews are believing in him at this point. They're saying, this guy, Jesus, can raise people from the dead. He must be the Messiah. And so the Jewish leaders are a little bit concerned at this point. Because if, if they all believe he's the Messiah, then, then what's going to happen to us? So so look down at verse 47 of John chapter 11. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So so they are worried that the Romans are going to hear that the Jews have a new king. And when they hear that the Jews have a new king, they're going to come and they're going to squash them. They're going to take away what freedom they do have. And so one of them, verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Isn't that a nice thing to say? You know nothing at all. 
Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So here's what Caiaphas is saying. He's saying we, we need to kill Jesus before this gets out of hand. If we kill him now, we'll save the, save the nation. We'll, if we kill him now, we'll save ourselves and we'll save the nation from the Romans coming and squashing us. That's what he means. But keep looking. Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Okay, so what Caiaphas meant was let's kill him so we can save our political place from the Romans. But when he spoke that advice, the text tells us that God was speaking through him, so Caiaphas was speaking better than he knew. Caiaphas didn't know this, but, but God was speaking through him, and, and God was going to have Jesus die for the people, and not just for the Jews, but for all of God's people across the whole world. And, and here in John chapter 18, John wants us to remember that. John's saying, don't forget what Caiaphas said. Caiaphas said that they wanted to kill Jesus. And he's reminding us of this because John wants to make a theological point right here at the beginning of this passage. He's making the point that Jesus is the substitute. Jesus is the substitute. Right here, verse 14, before we do anything else in this passage, John says, hear this, remember this, reflect on this. Jesus died as a substitute for God's people. That's what Jesus' death was all about. He was a substitute for God's people. So, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? We, we talk a lot about the gospel at Redeemer Church. We, we are a gospel-centered church. We, we love the gospel. We believe the gospel. We preach the gospel. We seek to live in accordance with the gospel. What is the gospel? It is the good news of salvation for hell-deserving sinners through faith in the person and work of Jesus. It's good news that sinners who deserve hell can be saved from hell by putting their faith in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And that's good news. That is good news. At the heart of that gospel is the concept of substitution. At the very center of the gospel is this concept, substitution. What substitution is is that Jesus puts himself in the place of those hell-deserving sinners so that hell-deserving sinners can can get everything that Jesus has earned in in, in his humanity. Jesus, Jesus lived a sinless life. And he died a sacrificial death. And so he he lived the life that we should have lived. His life substituted for our life. We've lived a sinful life. We've lived a rebellious life. And he has lived a sinless life, a righteous life, a a life that pleased God. And so he he gives us that life. And then then what does he do? He dies the death we deserve to die. He substitutes himself in our place. He takes on, as we saw last week, he takes on the wrath of God for sins, the penalty our sins deserve. He takes on the hell we deserve. He substitutes himself for us. That's at the very heart of the gospel. How can hell-deserving sinners have salvation? Through Jesus, the God-man, who dies on the cross in our place and gives us the record of his righteous life. That is the gospel. That's how we're saved. And John says at the very beginning here, says at the very beginning of this text, substitution. 
be thinking in terms of substitution. And what that is for us, we need to recognize what this is. These are, these are like the 3D glasses that you get when you go to a 3D movie. And, and if you don't have those glasses and you're trying to watch the movie, it's, it's, it's not going to pop. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be blurry. You're not really going to see it right. But if you put on those 3D glasses, then, then you see what they've made for you, right? This concept in this moment of substitution, this is like John saying here, wear these. Wear these 3D glasses. Think substitution right now. See this text through the lenses of substitution so that you can understand what's going on here. Okay, so we've got our 3D glasses on. We're thinking substitution. Scene two. Scene two. Peter denies Jesus. So, so when Jesus was arrested, we know that most of the disciples fled. They ran away. According to the Gospel of Mark, one of them actually ran away naked. <laughs> so, so the disciples ran away from Jesus in that moment. But this text tells us that two of the disciples kept following him. Simon Peter, and he says another disciple, which is likely his way of referring to himself. Peter and probably John, kept following Jesus. Okay, so they lead him to Annas' house. They, they, they lead him to this, this courtyard where Annas lived. And apparently, this other disciple, probably John, knew someone in the high priestly family. He had connections, all right? He knew a guy, okay? And so he gets to go in to the courtyard. But Peter does not know a guy, and so Peter is, is outside, and John makes provision for Peter. He's a good friend. He's, he, he, he goes to the servant girl and he says, hey, this, this guy's my friend. He's with me. Can you let him in? And so the servant girl lets him in. That's this scene up because we have a servant girl letting Peter into the courtyard where Jesus is arrested and he's going to be tried. And this servant girl, I guess as they're walking in, she says, you're not one of his disciples too, are you? The way she asks the question only has one acceptable answer. This is like if, if, if you were in elementary school and, and, and you're with the cool kid and the cool kid looks at one of your friends who's not the cool kid and he says, that, he's not your friend, is he? What, what do you do? You say, no, 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 he's not my friend. He's, he's weird, right? That, that, that's, that's how you respond. And, and, and amazingly, that's how Peter responds in this moment. No, I'm not, I'm not one of his disciples. She asks the question in a derogatory way. And Peter, in the moment, hears that tone, hears that derogatory nature from from this servant girl, and he denies Jesus. He says, I'm not one of his disciples. It's stunning when you think about what we know of Peter. Absolutely stunning that he, in this moment, would let that fear of man overcome him and deny Jesus. And then John gives us this picture in verse 18, this, this is a picture physically of what Peter was doing, but, but, but such a vivid picture of, of what was going on in Peter's heart. The, the officers, the soldiers, they are around a fire. It's the middle of the night. It is cold, and they've made a fire to warm themselves. They want to be comfortable. And Peter goes over and stands by the fire. He stands with all of these people who just came and arrested Jesus, all these people who Jesus just knocked to the ground, the same people who Peter just tried to start a fight with, now he's standing with them, warming himself by the fire. 
that, that's where Peter is in this moment. That, that's where his heart is. He, he is. he is all of a sudden on this path of, of wanting comfort and wanting security and wanting to blend in. This person who the text tells us in verse 15, he followed Jesus. This is a follower of Jesus now standing with the world, standing with the enemies of Jesus, warming himself by the fire. Well, that's scene two. Scene one, Jesus is arrested. Scene two, Peter denies Jesus. Scene three, Annas interrogates Jesus. Annas interrogates Jesus. And as we think about this next scene, we need to get the right picture in our minds. Uh, this, this is the beginning of Jesus' trial, but, but if we're thinking in our day, this is not a trial where we have a jury and a judge and a courtroom and witnesses. It's not that kind of trial. This is more like the scene in a movie where the bad guys capture the good guy, take him to some solitary place, tie him to a chair, put a solitary spotlight on him, and, and, and start talking to him. You, you, you know what I'm talking about. This is one of those scenes where, where this is completely a sham. This, this, is not, this is not a legal trial. This is not a legal proceeding. This is an illegal interrogation. Middle of the night, the Jews have taken Jesus to someone's private house tied, bound, with no witnesses, and they start asking him questions. And this is important to know because it helps us make sense of how Jesus responds. Okay, so, so the high priest Annas asked Jesus, who are your disciples, and what do you teach about yourself? He asked about his disciples and his teaching. But notice, Jesus refuses to answer the question, doesn't he? He, he says, I've spoken openly to the world. I'm not going to tell you anything that anyone who's heard me couldn't tell you. Go ask them. Why doesn't Jesus answer their questions? It's it's not because he's trying to save face somehow. It's because Jesus knows this is an illegal proceeding. You see, in Jewish culture, in Judaism at this time, it was not legal to ask the accused any questions. You had to get witnesses. You were not allowed to direct your accusations to the accused. You had, you had to get witnesses. And Jesus is saying, get a witness. He's saying, go get witnesses. This, this is a sham. Now, in that moment, one of the officers strikes Jesus across the face. It's the first sign we get in the passion of 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 the physical suffering Jesus was about to endure. It's the first moment where we see Jesus being physically mistreated by these people. He's slapped across the face, and and he says, are you supposed to talk to your high priest that way? And what does Jesus say? He says, listen, if I said something wrong, tell me what it is. But 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 if what I said is right, then why are you slapping me? Why did you hit me? Why did you strike me? I think there's a simple observation that we need to make from this scene. And it's this. Jesus is the innocent one. And the people who are arresting him are the guilty ones. He's the innocent one, and they're the guilty ones. They're the ones that are breaking the law, not Jesus. They're the ones that, that are proceeding with Jesus in a way that they know is against the law. Jesus is the one who, who says, go get witnesses, ask them, I've said nothing wrong, I've done nothing wrong. Jesus is asserting his innocence here, and they know it. Look how they respond. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas. Annas, Annas just says, there's nothing more I can do. 
he's right. We don't have anything on him. We don't have anything on this guy. And so he sends him away. That, that's scene three. Annas interrogates Jesus. Jesus shows, you're the guilty ones. I'm the innocent one. Go get a witness. Scene four. Peter denies Jesus again and again. Peter denies Jesus again and again. So, so while this is going on with Jesus, where's Peter? He's standing and warming himself still. He's still by the fire, standing and warming himself. And the questions keep coming, and the denials keep coming. Someone asks him again the same question. You're not one of his disciples, are you? No, no, I'm not. And then, get, get this. A relative of Malchus, the, the, the guy that Peter's ear cut off. You got the guy that Peter cut off his ear. One of his relatives says, didn't I see you in the garden with him? He's probably thinking, you look kind of like the guy that cut my cousin's ear off. He says, no, no, it wasn't me. He denies it again. Jesus' words to Peter back in the upper room come true. And in the time between his confident assertion that he will lay down his life for Jesus and the rooster crowing, Peter denied Jesus three times. And that's scene four. That's, that's the end of the scene. At, at, at this point, the, the narrative moves forward. We don't see Peter for a few more chapters. That's, that's where John ends this part of the story. Four scenes. And we have to ask, what is John teaching us through these four scenes? What is John getting at? You know, we are tempted right now to focus on Peter. We're tempted to focus on Peter and to ask questions like this, to ask, where did Peter go wrong? To ask, how could Peter do that? To ask, how could I not do that? what do I need to know to not be Peter? That's what, we, that's what we want to know. We don't want to do what Peter did. And so we want to figure out what he did and why he did it and how he did it and, and, and figure out where can we go right where Peter went wrong so that we don't end up denying Jesus like Peter did. Those are not bad questions to ask. Those are good questions to ask. We, we'll even look at some of the answers to those questions today. But if we focus in so narrowly on Peter and on what Peter did and why he did it and trying to discern what's going on with Peter, then we're missing what John is saying to us. Remember, we need those 3D glasses that that say what? Substitution. Be thinking substitution right now. And so what is going on? Well, we have those glasses on and then look at how John tells the story. It goes from Jesus to Peter, back to Jesus, back to Peter. Right? There's this, there's this back and forthness to this story. Why? What's he doing? He, he is setting up a contrast for us, isn't he? He, he? He's inviting us, look at Jesus, then look at Peter. Then look at Jesus, then look at Peter and see the difference. Look, Jesus is bound and Peter is free. Jesus is innocent and Peter is guilty. Jesus is suffering. Peter is warming himself by a fire. So here's what John is doing. He begins with this theological point, doesn't he? Jesus is the substitute for God's people. 
but he is not content to just make a theological point. John wrote this gospel so that people would read it and they would believe that Jesus is the Christ. And by believing, they would have life in his name. And only believing that Jesus is the substitute for God's people is not saving faith. Just believing that generally does not save you. John knows that, and what John wants to do is press in further by showing us this story of Peter and Jesus, this contrast, and he wants, he wants to drive us to a conclusion, and that is this. We are Peter. We already are Peter. We, we shouldn't read this and say, how can we not be like Peter? We read this and say, this is me here. This is me. I'm Peter, and Jesus is my substitute. I'm Peter, and Jesus is my substitute. Listen, we are all capable of doing what Peter did. Peter is not this this low-life, immature disciple. Peter was probably the strongest of all the disciples. He was a follower of Jesus. He walked on the water to Jesus. He had great faith in Jesus, great love for Jesus, great passion for Jesus. And in this moment, he denies him three times. We are all capable of doing what Peter did. There's no point in your Christian life where you progress and progress and and you're mature and that you're beyond denying Jesus. There's, There's no moment where you will move beyond falling and falling hard as a Christian. We're all capable. We also are all culpable. We're capable of doing what Peter did and we are culpable for what Peter did. Now, 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 my guess is if I asked you, did, did any of you this week, were you asked, are you a Christian? And if you're a Christian, you, you probably didn't respond, no, 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 I'm not. That probably didn't happen to you this week. So, so, so in what sense are you culpable? You are culpable for, for what Peter did because you have the same motives that Peter had. We, we all have the same heart that Peter had. We, we are followers of Jesus who don't follow Jesus. We are confessors of Jesus who don't confess Jesus. We are disciples who are standing by the fire warming ourselves. We're always doing that. We are Peter. And Jesus is not just the substitute generally. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is your substitute. Jesus is my substitute. If he is the substitute for all of God's people for all time, that that means that he is the substitute for us today, this morning. He is our substitute. And so with that picture in our minds that we are Peter, Jesus is our substitute, that is who he is, then then what do we do today? How do do we respond? How do we apply this? I have three applications today. First, beware of spiritual self-confidence. Beware of spiritual self-confidence. I've observed over the last few years that the more theological knowledge we have, the more prone we are to twist that knowledge into a 
a slothfulness, into a we're okayness about our lives, that, that, that we just begin to coast because we know. And we don't beware of, of what we're capable of. Th- think about Peter, and I, and I want us to get two different moments in our minds to, to understand what I mean and what I don't mean by bewaring of spiritual self-confidence. Be- because Peter, in chapter 6, as we saw earlier, he, he says to Jesus, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We, we, we believe and we have come to know, we are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. That is confidence. I mean, that is confidence. And in, in, in the moment of utter confusion about who Jesus is, he says, we're not going anywhere because we believe in you. We believe who you say you are. You have the words of eternal life. That, that is good confidence to have. That is confidence in Christ. That is confidence in his word. That, that's a desperate confidence. A confidence that, that you're not looking at yourself at all. You are just saying, even though I have no idea what you're talking about, I know who you are and I believe in you and you are rock solid, reliable, and I'm putting all my hope and faith in you. That's good confidence. What's not good confidence is Peter then saying, I will lay down my life for you. You know, in another gospel, Peter says, though all deny you, I will never deny you. That is self-confidence. That that is a confidence, confidence that looks inside and says, I have gotten so mature in my Christian walk that I'm beyond those sorts of things. That, that wouldn't happen to me. I'm good. I'm good. I'm safe. You don't, you don't need to worry about me. That's bad. <laughs> That's a bad confidence to have. That, that is a dangerous confidence to have. We should always be looking upward and outward to Christ and saying, we are absolutely confident in who you are and what you've done and what you've said, but, but we are absolutely not confident in ourselves because we know that we still have this sinful nature in us that is warring against what you've done in us and, and that wants us to follow and that one moment is all it takes. And if, and if you have that type of confidence in Christ and that type of humility in yourself, then that is going to drive you every day to the Word. It is going to drive you every day to prayer. It is going to drive you every day to God's people. It's going to drive you to accountability. It's going to drive you to confession. Because you realize that my confidence is only in Christ and it's not in me. And so beware of spiritual self-confidence. Second, consider how your sins are a denial of Christ. While you may not have committed the sin of denying Christ this week, every one of our sins as a Christian is a denial of Christ. At the heart of Christian sin is denying Jesus. Okay, think about this. Our sins are a denial of Christ's worth. When when we pursue impurity, when we pursue greed, when we pursue the lust of our flesh, when we we pursue these things that, that God has said are sinful, we are denying the worth of Christ. We are saying something is better than Jesus. We're denying his worth. Or sometimes our sins deny the words of Christ. Every week, Jesus, we say what Jesus said, that all authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations. So when we don't go, we're denying the words of Christ. We are living like that's not true. We're living like he doesn't have authority. We're living like all nations will not come to him. We are living like what he said is untrue. 
Or, or when he said in the, early in the Gospel of John, he said, if, if my words remain in you and you remain in me, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And then we don't read our Bibles and we don't pray and, and we don't seek his presence. We're denying his words. We're saying we believe him, but, but we're acting like we don't. We, we are denying what he said. Or, or think about how we deny his work. When, when we sit in judgment over others, when we look at someone else's life and we say, man, they, they really are struggling, and, and I'm so glad I'm not like that person. And why, why, why don't they get it? Why, why can't they just do better? Or, or, or we look to ourselves and we say, man, we are doing... Man, my, I'm doing a good job in my devotions. I'm doing a good job in my prayer life. And we start bolstering ourselves with this, with this self-righteous confidence. We're denying his work. We're, we're saying his work's not enough. We, do you see what I mean? All these sins, we could trace them all out. At the end of the day, they're all denying his worth and his words and his work. They're denying who Jesus is every time. And so, and so this morning, we need to feel the weight of the fact that, that we, we are deniers of Christ. We're always, we are always going back to the fire to warm ourselves when we should be taking up the cross. But, but John would not want us to leave here today and say, okay, I got to do better. I got to do better. I got to be better. I don't want to be Peter. No, John, John says, no, listen, you are Peter. You're, you, you already are him. Don't, don't you see that? And so what do you need to do? You need to take comfort in your substitute. Take comfort in your substitute. Jesus is the substitute for all sins. And what does that mean? If Jesus is the substitute for all the sins of God's people, then here's what that means. He's the substitute for the greatest sins. We all have sins in our lives that, that, that we can think of and say, and even still, knowing that I've been forgiven, that that was grievous. And we all have the ability in the future to commit great sins. Jesus is the substitute for those sins. He bore the penalty for those sins. That there's no sin, there is no sin, there's no sin that Jesus did not substitute himself for us for. There's no sin that he didn't pay the penalty for. There, there's no sin we can commit that we can't go back to the cross and say Jesus died for that. At the same time, Jesus is the substitute for our smallest sins. Not just for our greatest sins, but our smallest sins. And you, and you know what the price was for the greatest sins? It was his shed blood on the cross. You know what the price is for our smallest sins? It was his shed blood on the cross. Every sin is a denial of the infinite worth of Christ. And so every sin needs the same sacrifice, the blood of the Son of God for us, the sinless Son of God taken to death for us. Big sins, small sins, anything in between, they are all substituted for through Jesus. He is our substitute. And finally, he is the substitute for our whole lives. He's the substitute for our whole lives. Think to yourself, when, when you came to Christ, when you, first, when you first realized that you needed a substitute, that you were guilty before a holy God, that you deserved hell, and that you needed a substitute, and you, you realized Jesus is that substitute. He, he died on the cross for me. He took my penalty. 
That moment was the beginning of a life of turning back to the cross to see Jesus is your substitute. You You didn't just need a substitute back then. You need a substitute today. We need a substitute right now. We always need him to be our substitute, and he is our substitute our whole Christian lives. Whether you are 10 years old, or 40 years old, or 80 years old, you will look to Jesus and say, you are my substitute, you have been my substitute my whole life. Peter Peter was restored by Christ. He was forgiven by Christ. He became a leader in the church. He had his moments, as we know, even after that, where he sinned against Christ, where he continued to have to grow. But at the end of his life, you know, do you know what Peter did? Candace and I went to Rome a few summers ago with my family, and we got to stand at the spot where, where Peter was martyred for Christ. We got to stand at the spot where, where Peter was crucified upside down. For his testimony. He was crucified upside down because, because he said, I do not want to die in the same way that my Lord died for me. I'm not worthy to die in the same fashion that he died for me. Because at that moment, Peter had the cross in his grasp. He, he knew that Jesus substituted himself for him. He understood that he was not worthy. His, his spiritual pride had been crushed before the cross, and he lived in the shadow of the cross. And when it came time to give his life for Christ, he did not say, no, I'm not one of his disciples. He said, I am his disciple. I'm not worthy to be called his disciple. I will not even die the way that he died for me because I am in such grateful love for my Savior who did this, and so, and so he was crucified upside down. And that happened because he understood the cross. You know, we are about to take communion. And communion, the whole point of communion is to help us remember the cross, not simply as a theological affirmation, not, not that we simply come together and say, say we believe, that, that, that Jesus is the substitute for all of God's people, but that we would come to the cross right now and say, Jesus is my substitute. That we don't just theologically affirm this, but we personally celebrate this. That, that, that we have personal exultation in the cross of Christ as we ourselves take the bread and drink the cup. That we say, Jesus is my substitute. Today. So I invite you to bow your heads as we prepare for communion and